0: Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 32 through 44. Listen now to this word from God. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench, because he has been dead four days. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The word of God for the people of God. God. Will you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, Come, come roll away the stone. Amen. I used to read this Lazarus story with varying levels of skepticism. First off, this is straight up resurrection. There is no doubt that Lazarus is good and dead in this scene. Martha's warning to Jesus about the stench leaves no room to wonder. The modern mind likes to hold this story up to the light of science and physics and poke at it from various angles. Ask it questions that this story, I realized, was never meant to answer. We tend to hold it with a certain sort of preposterous entitlement somehow thinking in order to get on board with a dead man emerging into the broad light of day that we must first understand the nuts and the bolts, the hows and the whys. It's not the miracle in this story that is miraculous. We see a flavor of this miracle every day. We watch mothers Pregnant bellies swelling up to accommodate the flailing baby inside of her. The baby grows underwater in the dark warmth of a chamber before arriving to open her eyes and expand her lungs for the first taste of oxygen and sound and light. But it's part of our world and we experience it with such frequency that it's accepted. It doesn't blow our mind anymore unless we pause to really think about it. But this whole dead man coming to life thing is outrageous. If we don't understand it, it can't be true. As though God ever worked within the bounds of our understanding. As the poet Millaz writes, who serves best doesn't always understand. How liberating because there's so much about life that is triple wrapped in mystery. Today, rather than skepticism, I read this story with a hopeful version of horror. It's a disturbing story. We get quite a few details, some of them we'd rather not have. This is not your average healing miracle unlike the unnamed leper or the demoniac or the hemorrhaging woman who grasps for Jesus' cloak, this particular sick person is connected to Jesus. He's more than a stranger in a crowd of followers. He's a friend. The brother of Mary and Martha, you would think that Lazarus would be on the short list. The VIP section of the ready-to-get-redeemed roster that the disciples surely carried with them. It almost makes us wince to learn that Jesus was told about Lazarus falling ill and didn't immediately rush to his bedside. In fact, he dawdled two days too long before traveling toward Lazarus. Mary and Martha certainly don't understand why Jesus didn't hurry up, and they blame him blatantly. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus is too late, and there has been a very real death as a consequence. But perhaps the most disturbing aspect of this whole pericope is the part where Jesus is greatly disturbed, deeply moved, and finally breaks down and weeps. I can still describe to you the arrangement of furniture in my bedroom that day. I can see the sunshine streaming in through my window, sending slats of light across the gallery of stuffed animals on my bed. The golden light didn't match the rain clouds rolling across my dad's face as he cracked my door ajar and broke open the world as I knew it. Can I talk to you for a minute? It was the first time I had seen my father cry ever ever he told me he had been called to become pastor of a church on a little island it would mean leaving this patch of place and so many dear hearts that felt to us like extensions of our own family he felt god tugging him with a yes to move our family i don't think he was prepared to weep into my lap as i sat on the edge of my bed fifth grade, riveted and shocked. I felt confusion that my father at that juncture in my life, the ground beneath my feet was visibly shaken. It was disorienting and it lodged itself in my memory with vividness in the file folder marked important. I have an inkling that a sobbing Jesus clued the disciples in to the gravitas of the moment playing out in front of them. Just like children hanging on to the words of their trusted parent, the disciples find themselves in the presence of their guide and their leader, and they watch him quake. It is a shift of major proportions. It strikes me that there are two rocks moved in this short story of Lazarus. Jesus, the one who is the rock steadfast and firm, is moved. He is cracked open and he sheds the only tears we watch him cry in the whole Bible. The second rock is that one that is rolled away from the tomb, the one that is moved so Lazarus can live. Why is Jesus crying, I wonder? Many have wondered and speculated, The disciples themselves say, see how much he loved Lazarus. Did Jesus love Lazarus? Absolutely. His tears could have been love. Or they could have been tears of grief. Or perhaps even guilt that he didn't make it in time to say goodbye to his friend. Or better yet, to heal him. Or was he watching the sealed off tomb, feeling the stirrings of foreboding, knowing that his own dark tomb lay in the very near future? Were the tears rolling down his face, collective humanity's sorrow that death separates us from those we hold dearest? Grief that we all eventually say goodbye to one another on earth? Were his tears God's own? The tears of a heavenly parent cascading over a creation that's about to kill the one who embodies its very best intention. I imagine the disciples kept this scene in the file folder of their hearts, marked important. It's a watershed-type moment. And I think what happens is weightier than Lazarus' death or even Jesus' tardiness I think it's even more important than the greatest act of healing that Jesus will demonstrate in his ministry. I think the heft of this story comes as I observe Jesus himself. Not that Jesus uses this moment to show his Messiahship, not even that the bounds of death are defied so God can be glorified. I read this passage and I watch Jesus weep. And I know there's plenty I don't know. The physics of resurrection, the mysterious goings-on inside the tomb. I haven't the faintest. But when I watch Jesus weep, I know in a place deeper than cerebral sorting out that what happens at Lazarus' tomb is monumental. I may not know the why behind Jesus' tears, but it sure is hopeful. I take heart that my Savior can kneel at my headstone, grass stains on his knees but not caring. I take heart that he can weep, that he feels loss and love, guilt and grace, hopelessness and hope. I love that Jesus shows us how to feel the tears of overwhelm. He blesses the human experience by joining us in crying at the tomb, weeping tears that society shames us into brushing off discreetly or hiding behind a rosy platitude. Jesus stands at the base of Lazarus' tomb, and he sobs there at the edge where old life transforms to meet new life. I don't know why Jesus cries, but I'm so glad he does. It tells me in a place words can't reach that the edge of transformation is a nexus beyond speech. We all have Lazarus places in our journeys of faith. Sick places, dysfunctional relationships, old paradigms that center around us. Addictions to toxic substances or even people, an obsession with being perfect, the need to be right at all costs, an all consuming insecurity that we're actually not as good as people think we are. We all have some sickness that will lead us to dark and lonely caves of our soul, stagnant and stinking. But even there, bound though we may be, we are still being chased by love. There is no death, spiritual or physical, that can separate us from our Savior, lovingly calling our name for us to step out into the light. A very dear professor and brilliant exegete of the biblical text, Bill Brown, made a theologically huge distinction in today's text from Revelation one day in class. With a twinkle in his eye, he told us what God did not promise. God does not say, behold, I am making all new things. God does not scrap what God created with so much care and love. It's not tossed out into the landfill so God can start fresh with better material. In the kingdom, God makes all things new. A new heaven and a new earth is heaven anew, earth anew. God is not in the business of destroying our essential goodness that is is at the heart of every soul created in the divine image. There's simply a sloughing off of the exterior baggage that gets in the way of our glistening, We are renewed and refreshed and resurrected. It's news that is enough to make you weep. As I pondered the Lazarus story on this All Saints Sunday, I kept thinking about how fragile and how gorgeous the edge of our life really is. At church, we mark the birth of a new life with a baptism, and we mark the passing of that life with a funeral. These are threshold moments where we come from mystery and we return home to mystery. And it strikes me that there are these little threshold edge moments for each of us at different times on our journeys of faith. Maybe it's the moment you feel God's presence for the first time as you stand on a mountain looking at the gorge. Maybe it's the moment you realize you're trapped in a pattern or a behavior that you've tried to stop but cannot. Maybe it's the transition into parenthood when life as you knew it, centered on us, has to shift from the bottom up to accommodate a love that's bigger than we've ever known. Maybe it's the moment you discover with adult eyes that those that you hoped were perfect are in fact regular old critters like you, and the disappointment is palpable any given Sunday, someone next to you in your pew could be standing at a threshold. Right now, the curly-haired teenager could be undergoing a silent transformation, grace and wisdom being birthed in the shadows of sorrow and heartache from bullying. The grouchy man behind you His freedom is currently being conceived and nurtured in the dark spots of his grief. There in the shadow lands, the alto in the choir could be secretly shedding what she longed and hoped for. The tired mom is surrendering in the miserable muck of ruined reputations or crushed dreams. The widower has a moment to pause from the scurrying around of funeral logistics and the weight of the loss of his bride takes his breath away. Shrouded in our burial cloths, we give up. It is terrifying, but also a relief to hand it over. And then we wait, while God uses all things for good. Parker Palmer writes about the precipice of threshold moments, which he calls on the brink of everything. I love it, on the brink of everything. He writes, I'm not sure why most of the phrases, most of uses of this phrase are negative, as in on the brink of giving up or on the brink of losing my mind or on the brink of going to war, even though it could be used positively. Perhaps it's because deep in the reptilian brain, we're afraid of falling from heights or crossing boundaries into the unknown. But isn't it possible that when we're on the brink We are on the brink of flying free, or discovering something of beauty, or finding peace and joy. Could it be that after the dark pit of surrender and change, there's an effervescence waiting on the other side of the grave? Could it be that Lazarus emerges with eyes wide and bright? with visible remnants of his bondage and pain hanging lifeless at his side, that he's a lighter version of himself? Could it be that Lazarus has seen death and darkness, been humbled and molded and strengthened in the sinews of his psyche? I have this image of Lazarus stumbling into the light with his grave clothes jutting out at every angle. And yet his face is buoyant and shining. I actually think Lazarus is on the brink of laughing with a chuckle that starts in his toes. This uncontainable mirth and levity that comes from facing all that darkness and being drawn out of it by the whisper of his weeping Savior. This All Saints Day, we remember with fondness those who came before us in the faith. They had their own threshold moments between their birth and their death. They stumbled and fell, clung and grasped, took leaps of faith and offered grace they didn't know how they had. No one walks this life perfectly. But the tender spots of our suffering and pain place us right on the brink of everything. Poised in exactly the right place to bless others, not despite our tears, but with them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.